All right, let's make our way. Matthew chapter 7, verse uh, 13 and 14 for this morning in a message entitled, Two Ways of Life. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. As we come now to a close of the Sermon of the Mount, many scholars believe that the actual content of the Sermon of the Mount ends in verse 12, and that's why we find the word therefore offered to us. And then Jesus, like any good pastor, when he says he's about to close, goes on for another half hour. And he ends the sermon with four distinct warnings. The first, of course, is the narrow way, number one. The second is knowing false prophets by their fruit. Then he goes on to say that there are those who will be surprised to discover that once they enter into the kingdom of heaven, uh, I'm sorry, once they stand before him before all eternity, they will discover that they never knew him and he never knew them and lastly of the four warnings we have the famous two individuals who build themselves a house one upon the rock and one upon the sand but jesus begins these warnings by using a wisdom theme called the theme of two ways it is a wisdom theme that is found not only in the old testament used in Judaism, but it was also uh, used within philosophy in the Gentile world as well. It was used to allow the listener, the one receiving the information, to draw themselves into the teaching and to ask themselves a personal question. And that question, of course, is which of the two are you? For, For example, in the Old Testament, if you begin in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 through 28, God says, Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the command of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commands of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I commanded you today to go after other gods which you have not known. Moses continues in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 and 16, with this same methodology, the wisdom of two ways. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments, His statutes, and His judgments that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land in which you go to possess. Even when it comes to the major prophets of the Old Testament, we find again this theme of two ways. When Jeremiah states in Jeremiah 21.8, Now you say to this people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. A theme of two ways. Of course, meant to provoke the listener, the one receiving this information, 
to consider which of the two they are and where they stand in relationship to the teaching in which has just been given or the invitation that they have just been presented with. We also find this in a work called the Mishnah and commented upon in the Talmud. Now these are little historical uh, insights to help us fully understand the impact of what Jesus is saying here this morning. Now, last time I used those two phrases, someone asked me uh, after church if I could explain a little bit further what those two things are. The Mishnah was a set of writing compiled after 70 AD. And the writings compiled were the oral traditions taught in Jerusalem and in Israel between 530 BC and 70 AD. These writings encapsulated the oral teaching of the rabbis at that time. Because during that period of time, pretty much the end of Malachi uh, all the way through the Gospels to the point of 70 AD, Jerusalem was under the occupation of a conquering uh, empire. First it was the Greeks, then it was the Romans. And as a result, one of the things forbidden to the uh, intellectual of that time was them writing their teachings down because both the Greeks and the Romans believed that these writings could be used uh, for purposes of sedition or insurrection. So oral teaching could not be recorded during that time. And so afterwards, the destruction of Jerusalem, the Mishnah was just that, a compilation of oral teaching pretty much from 530 B.C. to 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, a couple hundred years later, the Talmud was written, which was a commentary, a Jewish commentary upon the Mishnah. And there are two sets of Talmuds. One is Jerusalem Talmud, and the other one is the Babylonian Talmud. And of course, it references that one was uh, compiled shortly after the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Talmud, and the Babylonian Talmud. I think that as a Bible student, we have to take these things into consideration to help us understand what Jesus was saying during his sermons in the Gospels. Because this was the, this gives us an insight to the mindset of those who were listening to Jesus at that time. And though they were familiar with this, as you can see, Jesus now brings his own meaning and definition to these sayings to define them or to redefine them in the listeners of the hearers around him. For example, in the Mishnah, we find uh, writings such as this. A person was sitting at a crossroads with two paths before him, one which started out smooth and ended amidst thorns, and one which started out amidst thorns and ended smoothly. We also find one that states, There are two ways before me, he writes, one leading to paradise and the other to Gehenna. I dare not know by which I shall be taken. So we see that this concept, this understanding of two ways, 
through the Old Testament and also through the oral teachings of the Mishnah and commented on in the Talmud. This was a methodology that the people were very familiar with and it doesn't surprise me a moment that Jesus would draw from that. And he would capture that concept and bring all new meaning to it. And he would challenge those who were listening to him. He would challenge them to ask themselves, who am I, where am I, which path am I upon, which gate shall I enter in? We have two gates, two paths, two different people, and two different destinations. And so we begin in verse 13. Of course, the command is now entered by the narrow gate. And of course, that is contrasted by the wide gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in it by it. When Jesus was in Jerusalem, obviously that's where I believe, you know, the people were most familiar with at this time. The city of Jerusalem was constructed like many cities in that culture. There were main entrances, but there were also small entrances into the city also. Because not only did the wall around the city need to fortify the city from aggressor, ag aggression from those who may seek to conquer it, but it also needed to allow the occupants of that city a way of escape. And so smaller gates were created throughout the city to allow for escape and to also allow for entrance in by those who know that those gates exist. But those gates were not readily used. The main gate going into Jerusalem, of course, is the gate in which Jesus entered in when he rode on the back of the donkey and presented himself to the religious leaders and also to the people as their coming Messiah. And that gate was wide and broad, allowing for as many people to come in as possible, where the narrow gates, if found by many, would be congested and take a long time to get through, so they were avoided. The second aspect of this is the manner in which they traveled uh, to those gates. Now, of course, in Jerusalem, they did not have roadwork projects like we do here in Illinois, okay? You know that summer is almost here when you see the construction flags all over the, the roads, don't you? And you wonder, did you ever notice that they seem to pave the same four feet of road every single time and it's never the four feet that I need to be done? The manner in which the way became smooth and flat was by the number of people who traveled upon it. By foot traffic alone, it would compress the earth, allowing for a smoother surface to walk upon. And because people carried things and carts were uh, drawn through this uh, uh, broadway, this, uh, the main way, any type of stones or anything that would jostle the cart were removed as they entered into the gate. So it would be the easiest way in which to go. But because the smaller gates of the city were not utilized as much, the way to them was not nearly as prepared. And it was often quite difficult. And with people with carts and things that they were carrying, they often went through the easiest, more, most accessible way possible. So the imagery here is very relatable to those who were listening to Jesus. 
But the distinction really lies not only in the size of the gate, not only in the manner in which the road is prepared, but in the destination that they provide. One Jewish scholar believed, and I couldn't confirm this, but he believed that the narrow gates were actually closer to the temple. And they would have known that at that time. But I just throw that out for you maybe to consider. But that being said, it is undoubtable that Jesus Christ is talking about himself. He's talking about the manner of righteousness that he will provide for the person through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's talking about that he himself, as John wrote in John 10, would become the door. That he would become the entranceway, as he says in John 14, 6. For I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And this would seem so insignificant in the grand scheme of the Mosaic Covenant, which of course dominated the thinking of the individual Jewish people as they were there. And he's preparing them. He's saying to them, be ready. For the way that I prepare is going to be much narrower than the broad way. The way I prepare is going to be much more difficult. It'll be accompanied by persecution, exclusion. The world will hate you. You will be ridiculed and mocked and maybe even lose your life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The broad way is of little resistance. As one stated, any dead fish can float downstream. But it takes one who is alive to swim against the current to reach the destination and to survive. But he said, even though the gate is narrow and even though the way is difficult, the end is eternal life. The end is salvation. The end is the, in the presence of the Lord for all eternity. And the broad way, though inviting and easy, ends in destruction. Of course, the people there knew from the very beginning what Jesus inferred by these things. For Paul tells us very clearly in Acts chapter 4, I'm sorry, Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, knowing that there is no other uh, name by, under heaven given among men by which one can be saved. It is interesting, when Christians were first identified, they were not known or called Christians. They were called people of the way this creating a distinction saying that these individuals are traveling that road less traveled they are entering in by the narrow way they are walking contrary to those on the broad path entering into the jerusalem by the broad gate I've had the privilege of going to Disney World in Florida seven times. As you know, in the Bible, seven is the number of completion. I have no desire to go back there again. I am done. (laughs) They tell me that it's supposed to be the happiest place on earth, but I have seen some of the worst meltdowns from little kids there in the kingdom than any place else that I've ever been. And I'm always next to them in the line that's going to take two hours to get to the ride that's going to last 15 seconds. 
But you wait there patiently because somewhere on the dotted line, you sign this agreement that that taking your child to Disney World makes you a good father. I've often questioned the wisdom of that. But I'm always amazed when I go down there and how prepared they have, uh, and how, I should say, significantly they designed that park. It's so welcoming. You can, you can see that you're getting close to the kingdom because even the power line structures are in the shape of Mickey heads. You know, little circles to hold the power lines going in there. And you follow those power lines right along the highway and you know you're getting close to Disneyland or Disney World. And then, of course, the signs. And then you start driving up the, the entranceway and there's this huge thing saying, you're getting into the kingdom and you're like, everybody's like, oh, and then everybody in the car starts singing small world, you know, and it's just one of those moments and you drive through and you pay $30 to park your own car and then to walk for six miles uh, and so forth. But when I was there in Florida last, I was at the hotel by the pool and I was talking to another family who was there on vacation. We were talking about how we hope to God this is our last trip to Disney World. And he said, did you ever know that there were other entrances to Disney World? That you can go back on the frontage roads or you can pull up behind um, Disney? And so returning to the park that week, we took one of those roads. And I will tell you, it is the most unwelcoming thing in the entire world. I mean, you literally drive up to the back of this amusement park. I mean, the animated characters are all sitting there uh, on break smoking cigarettes, holding the heads to their costumes. And it's just like, what? This is not a magical place. In fact, this is terrifying, you know. But yet it was, you know, you, you get in and then all of a sudden, once you get past all of that, then you're in the kingdom. For people who are entering in the front, they think they're entering in the kingdom, but behind all of that is just... Uh, it's not a reality. It's, it's, it's a false front. It's not really what they think it is. For you and I as Christians, we're entering into the back way and eventually we'll get to that heavenly kingdom that we look forward to and can't wait to see. But the Broadway thinks that they're entering into the kingdom when in actuality they are just simply uh, looking at a facade that is going to end in destruction. That's what Jesus was saying here. And he makes it incredibly clear that the external righteousness of the Pharisees, as he mentioned in Matthew 5, verse 20, reminding us that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, we will by no means enter in the kingdom of God. And now he tells us that this entrance will be narrow. The way to it is going to be difficult. And few will find it. Of course, that word is used in conjunction with the totality of the popula uh, population of the entire world. Today, there are many walking on the broad way. They are going the easy way. They think that eternal life may wait for them, but most of, most of them on that way aren't even considering that concept any longer. But in the end, the moment that they close their eyes in this world, they are going to open their eyes to the reality of an existence apart from God for all eternity. And though you and I as Christians, it does get difficult. 
And we are being persecuted intellectually and verbally. We are being censored. And those things that we want to say on social media that seems to be so accepting of everything else except something that has to do with Jesus. But this is what Jesus told us that we can expect. I'll never forget that one passage, the rich young ruler. I always go back to this when I talk about salvation because I think it's so important. That when he came to Jesus, if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, again found in Matthew's Gospel, I believe this narrow way is further illustrated by the fact of this encounter with Jesus and the rich young ruler. And we're going to be picking it up in verse 16 this morning. And the way was so narrow that I believe that it even confused the disciples at this moment. The moment that they heard this exchange between Jesus and the rich young ruler. Now in verse 16 of chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel, we begin by Jesus, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to them, He said to him, excuse me, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, well, which one? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your mother and your father, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, please remember for a moment that Jesus redefined all of these in Matthew chapter 6 where he said it's not only the actions but the thoughts that also convict you before God of these sins so he wasn't containing these things simply to the actions which this young man believed that he had kept he also obviously is emphasizing the aspect of the thoughts and the mind behind these things that would reflect the depravity of one's heart the young man said to him, Well, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And again, I say to you that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The narrow way. I'm sure, like myself, you have often been accused of being narrow-minded when it comes to your religious ideas. To think and to say for a moment that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, the only way to salvation, the only way to God, by many in our society today, seems very um, bigoted. It seems very exclusive of, you know, uh, of so many other world religions around the world. And let me be abundantly clear. 
Some would like to believe that every religion of the world is just their personal attempt in all reaching the same God in whom you and I embrace today. That couldn't be farther from the truth. For Jesus Christ again stated that he was the only way. This narrow way is not something that we have constructed or an idea that we have come up with. It is simply reiterating that what Jesus has already said. And Jesus knew that this was going to be problematic for those who would hear it. Again, we would like to believe, wouldn't we, that every religion in the world in their sincerity and in their piety eventually will gain entrance into the kingdom of God. But that's not so. Because none of those other religions in the world provide what Jesus Christ could only provide for you and I, and that is atonement, salvation, the cleansing of our sins and the clothing of us in the righteousness of God through Him. Let us be very, very clear about that. And one of the reasons that the early church in Acts chapter 9 was already appearing to be uh, persecuted for their belief in Jesus was because they said there was only one way. And you and I now carry that challenge today in our culture, but let me tell you this today. There isn't another solution in this world that will restore a human life apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything else is dependent upon the individual's efforts themselves to right themselves. Where God changes us, we are born again, we are renewed from the inside out. We are returned to that state of perfection that we lost through the sin of Adam. Through the salvation of Jesus Christ, we are now being perfected, restored, returned to what God initially always desired us to be. And only through Jesus is that possible. Because Jesus was not a mere man. He wasn't a mere prophet. He certainly uh, wasn't reduced to a good teacher. He was God. And He paid a penalty that we could not pay by dying on the cross for our sins. A substitution for ourselves clothing himself and receiving the death that was due to us that we may live. The Proverbs warned us from the very beginning. The wisdom of Solomon to his children. He says to his children, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. And the psalmist wrote in Psalm 1611, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is what God has done for us. I like to conclude with this from an old favorite of mine, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. It's amazing that he's still on the radio today. And his teaching is still as wonderful today as it was when he first gave those sermons there at his church. And he talked about this being the way of the funnel. The way of the funnel. He always had a unique way of presenting things so people could grasp them easily. He says what Jesus is experiencing here is a funnel. He says, 
the majority of people would want to enter the funnel through the broad mouth of it. But finding out that the funnel then leads to a confined condemnation and death. But those who find life will enter into the narrow portion of the, fu- of the funnel, discovering that it leads to a broader, more abundant life in Jesus Christ. The question that the Lord would ask us today is, what path are you on? As the path becomes more difficult, as we go forward, and we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, more and more people will consider which path that they were on, and we know that some will get off this narrow way and go the broad way. We know that. But this is what Jesus wanted his recipients to hear. At this point, he wanted them to consider this one fact. What path are you on? Because there are two paths. One leading to life and the other leading to death. 